Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second season of For the Love of Books podcast, featuring indie and small press authors with host Emma Polova. Our guest today is author Jared Morningstar, who is a high school English teacher and adjunct English professor. His writings reflect his interests and observations of the world. Morningstar loves music, playing guitar, late night dinner experiences, and long road trips. He has written two collections of poetry and short fiction, American Fries, Poems and Stories, and American Reality, Poems and Stories. At the end of this episode, Jared will give details of his book giveaway. Hello, Jared. How are you? I am doing well, Emma. Thank you. How are you? Me too. I'm doing great. Let's talk about your first book, American Prize Poems and Stories. Why did you pick this title? It's a really good question. I The reason why that the title was picked uh, actually came to me like I I was already assembling pieces for the book uh, long before I came up with the title. Uh, The title piece for the book was actually the last one that was written for the entire collection. Uh, As I was going through the pieces that both the poems and the stories that I was combining for the collection, I originally just intended it to be just kind of, you know, just a collection of things that I had written over the years. But as I was going through everything and editing things and and figuring out an order, I noticed that there was a loose running theme throughout the book. And that was the uh, themes and topics um, that were consistent with like this loose running theme of America, uh, different aspects of the American life and American experience. And I was just thinking about the nature of some of those pieces. And while some of them, I I think reflect uh, a genuine care and love for the country, uh, there's also a lot of criticism there and pointing out some hypocrisies and and things of that nature. And I was just thinking about what I was gonna call it. And I figured that the title would have to have something to do with America. And I was trying to think about, okay, so what can I pair with that? And I was thinking about other things in the book. And one of the experiences that was covered somewhat was just American food and food habits and things like that. And so I got to thinking about um, back right after 9-11, when there were some folks in the early days of the war on terror, uh, we were looking, the United States was looking for allies and France was one of those countries that I guess there were some people in the country that felt like maybe they weren't being as helpful as they could be. And so there were plenty of folks who said, well, if that's how they're going to be, then we're not going to call them French fries anymore. They'll be American fries or freedom fries or whatever it was. And I thought that, first of all, that, that, you know, American fries kind of sounded funny Uh, as a title for the book and kind of kitschy. But at the same time, I thought that uh, it captured like the essence of like this hypocritical false patriotism uh, that runs throughout the book. And I thought, well, there we go. I'm going to call it American Fries. And so the last thing I did then uh, was write a piece, a poem with that title 
that ends up leading the collection and carries that theme through. So that's where the title came from. Okay, that's the title. What inspired this book? Well, the book's original inspiration, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound really lame, uh, but the book's original inspiration uh, simply was just to get a collection of my work out there. Uh, I had been creative writing seriously since I was an undergrad, and that started back, I think I started taking creative writing classes at Saginaw Valley State back in 2004. And so there are some drafts, not all of them, but some of the pieces in there have been edited, but they're the original pieces dated back to 2004, 2005. And I have written pieces off and on since, but I'm not terribly prolific. And so I thought, well, I have a chance I can put everything together and then I'm just going to release what I have. You know, it's mm -hmm. the middle of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. And, I'm, you know, I mean, I have health concerns and things like that, like a lot of people. And I thought, well, here's my shot. I'm going to get everything out there just in case. And um, I know it sounds kind of morbid and I'm laughing now, but at the time. It, it was, wasn't funny it was, at the time. No, no, it wasn't funny at the time. And so. Yeah, the original inspiration was just to get my stuff out there. I thought, well, I'll just collect everything that I've published through various journals and here we go. And so that was the really like low key inspiration for it. But what happened and that was fun is that, like I said, when I was going through everything, it was like a happy accident. I'm like, oh, everything I guess, I guess does kind of tie pretty well together. It really is about America. And so I could pretend that it was all intentional and that's what I meant to do the whole time that I was going to write about America but in truth the, the original inspiration was just to just to get my stuff out there and then it became something better than what was intended. That kind of reminds me of my first collection in my oh, yeah. first book of short stories it's a collection that I've written over the last 20 years yeah, that's pretty cool that you got it out together. Thanks. Who are the heroes in your books? Who are the heroes? Wow, that's a good question. I'm not sure if there are heroes. No, and I know that I don't know. And that I know that that seems kind of dark. I suppose that if you go through the poetry section, mm -hmm. uh, maybe there are some more heroic characters there. I know that there's a piece called Truth About Santa Claus where the it's really personal. Uh, the speaker in that piece um, comes to find out when the, the whole truth about Santa Claus is revealed that, oh, so it's my grandma doing it the whole time. But then the, the, the love that came from that, you know, coming from someone who didn't have a whole lot of financial means, but still dedicated whatever she could do to like make Christmas as good as it could be uh, for us. I thought, well, wow, that's, that's way more magical than any Santa Claus story. And so I guess that the grandma in that piece is a hero. Um, and, and there are other poems in there too, like Jamal Khashoggi. There's a piece written for the journalist who was, uh, who was uh, uh, assassinated uh, a couple of years ago because he was trying to get the word about, out about uh, situations that were happening in Saudi Arabia and America about 
restrict restricting the public and all of that and he died for that obviously he was killed for that but i think he's kind of a hero so there there there's certain parts of that in the poetry section but when it gets to the fiction um i don't know if i would categorize anyone as a hero certainly not in stories like uh slice of american pie that that protagonist that main character is very dark and very troubled and and far from heroic um same thing with um with, with scream um the the protagonist there is basically in hell and he and like he's seeing the person who was cheating with his wife and and he's oh, like cheering okay. cheering that the guy's in pain and like well i kind of feel sympathetic for him i guess that he uh you know that he was cheated on and all this misery and stuff like that but it's not really heroic um and even i guess if i had to pick one hero out of that book um, i guess that you could take a look at mark and saying goodbye to baby blue but even that character who started off innocent and had big dreams even he still took a downturn and made some really bad choices and he realized his mistakes at the end but Okay. Uh, you could argue that it's too late. So I don't know if there are any heroes, but mm -hmm. I think that, I think for me at least, that reflects on how I see the real world. I don't know if the the way we see heroes in like the sense of a Superman or these these perfect beings, I don't know if they really exist. And so I think that by having so many characters that are either dark or a shade of gray, uh, I think that um, I think that that's probably more reflective of who we are as people and who who we live amongst. And so, it's not maybe traditional. Uh, it's not what I think we come to expect in literature and and in film. But I think that while we cast that aside, the whole heroic uh, archetype, what we do get is we get uh, some heavy doses of reality, even if they're sometimes unpleasant. Okay. What were the major challenges in writing this book and how did you overcome them? I think that, I mean, I could talk about finding a publisher. Uh, I could talk about the editing process. I could talk about picking what pieces go in there and in what order. But honestly, Emma, I think that my greatest challenge, especially with that first book, the biggest challenge I had was just being confident to put it out there to begin with. Being confident. I, you know, I, um, I, I come from a family with two siblings who are much more creatively talented than I am. I'm married to a woman who is infinitely more creatively talented than I am. And, um, you know, she's won awards for her creative writing. She was the editor-in-chief of our college lit journal. And so I've always been around people who are really creatively talented. And I look at their work, and I know that I'm not a horrible writer or anything. But when I come constantly comparing myself to them, even to my students, well, I, I've been lucky enough to have some really exceptionally talented young creative writers around me. And I just never really felt like my work lived up to the standards that I believed it needed to be to get a, to, to really even be worthy of publication. I would say that uh, my feelings about that probably started to change maybe 2017, 2018, when I started to submit more pieces to journals, I started mm -hmm. to get some confidence back then. 
and I know, and I would share my pieces with my wife that I would write. And, and she said, well, you're getting better at this and you're getting better at that. And she's a great editor for me. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can actually try to put this thing together. And then as we were talking about before, when, when the pandemic hit and we were all just kind of like in this constant state of flux about what's going on, yeah. what to do, yes. um, I thought, well, I guess maybe this is my best time to do it. You know, it's COVID summer 2020. Let me try to like put my put a manuscript together and see what see what happens. And I was in touch with a publisher who accepted one of it was an anthology that I submitted a piece mm -hmm. to. Uh, and the anthology was uh, pieces that have been rejected. Like the whole collection is like pieces that have been rejected by other journals. Okay. And I, I saw that advertisement out there for submission, that call for submission. And I thought to myself, well, I can do that. I've got lots of pieces that have been rejected. And so don't we all? We all have <laughs> right. exactly. And so when I sent that piece over, uh, he was really kind and said, "This is perfect." And that was the start of our working relationship. And then accepted the manuscript, and there we go. But yeah, that self confidence challenge was a big one for me. A lot of you know because I I know literature, I love literature, but I think that that's part of the problem too. Is because well, I know what good literature is how do I make that? And that's where I doubted myself for a long time. I think most authors have that, you know, lack of confidence. What are the major takeaways from American Prize? <clears throat> the major takeaways. Um, well, that I hope what comes through as you read through American Prize specifically. Uh, one takeaway I think is how diverse the American experience is. If you take a look at everything that there is to see in America, I mean, there's a lot. We've got our fascination with celebrity. You have our fascination with food. You have the holidays with Santa Claus and stuff like that. You yeah. have this whole idea of freedom. And then we don't like it when people take freedom away. Um, and so I, I think the diverse American experience comes through with American fries, but what doesn't, what I don't, um, what I try not to show is though, that even though I love the country, I love America, uh, I love it not in like that blindly patriotic way. I wanted to showcase uh, a diverse but complicated America, an America that leaves folks behind even though the romantics, the romantic American apologists and romantics will say the, well, the American dream is for everybody. And maybe it is, but it's not as easy for everybody. And, and a lot of factors go into that, whether it's social class, uh, whether it's race or, or religion or all the, these things, like there's lots of forms of prejudice and there's lots of reasons why, you know, uh, the American experience isn't as great for everybody. And so I wanted to showcase some of those wrinkles, but also in a way that shows that even though that I'm acknowledging the flaws, the love is still there too. Uh, I read a review that um, said that the piece, like my pieces in that particular book were uh, full of aching nostalgia. And I think that that's fair. And I think that my love of certain aspects of the country comes through just fine. But the criticism I think also has to be there. Um, and so what I hope is that when people read this book and read what's in it, 
Um, they're going to show folks that, you know what, you don't have to love everything about America. You don't have to hate everything about America. There is a middle ground. And I think that my book tries to strike that chord. Yes. Are your two books interconnected? Yes, I, th I think so. I sometimes call the two books companions. Part of me wishes I would have waited and released them both. But I, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We never know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm, um, sure. But they, but they are connected. I think that the difference between American fries and American reality is with American reality. When that collection, when I started putting that book together, I knew what I was doing. I knew about putting manuscripts together. I knew about all of the aspects that went into the publication. And I was able to write with a bigger focus where American Fries was a happy accident. American reality is also, you could argue it's, it's, it's a follow-up statement about America, but this time I had a plan going in. Um, mm -hmm. And this time I feel like that the, the focus statement about America in that book is darker, uh, it's more political, and uh, it also was a lot more thematically focused and intentional. Um, but are they connected? Yeah. Could I probably put together a single volume version of the two and would it still work? Probably. Probably. Um, I, think, I, think, I think it probably would work just fine. Yes. What are their common themes? What are the common themes they have, the two books? I think that both of them deal with the downtrodden quite a bit. Um, they deal with folks who are struggling. Uh, I think that that's a big theme, folks who are struggling to find their way. And I suppose a lot of that might come from uh, some of my own experiences growing up in a working class with a working class background. Um, but it's not just about class. As I was saying before, there are pieces in there discussing prejudices against um, folks of different races and ethnicities and uh, religions and sexual orientations and things of that sort. So there's, there's that discussion. Uh, there is a political discussion which is really amped up in reality because I wrote a lot of that stuff right in the heat of the coronavirus pandemic but also the tumultuous final year of the Trump administration. Um, I think so Politics is there in fries, even more so in reality. Um, I try to uh, also, though, point out that there are the bright side. Um, and well, I don't know if I should call it the bright side, but at least the more hopeful side, where I talk about what really makes life love, lovely and worth living. I talk about my family and, and my kids and, you know, and, and some of that incorporates some of these American themes and symbolism like holidays and uh, holidays and vacations and, you know, just fun things you do with the kids in America on, you know, on a weekend. Um, and so I think that there is, there's that side of it as well. Um, and, uh, and then I think that, you know, I tried to find as even beyond that side of the hope, uh, also some hope there with some characters who, even though they are struggling for various reasons, uh, that, you know, some of them don't give up. At least the ones I like best don't give up. Oh. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, so that's, and so that's there too. Even when the books go the darkest, I always try to find uh, 
try to find lessons that can be learned from all of it and uh, the urge to keep fighting to try to make you know this country a better place. Absolutely. And now the big question, what is America to you? Wow, that is a really good question. You posed that question <laughs> right, right on your back cover. <laughs> what is America? I, um, that is a great question. I think that the America I love is the American ideal what should be true for everybody, that we all have a voice, an equal voice, that we are a nation dedicated to leading the world in terms of not just in economics or technology or things like that, but leading the world with a truly moral voice, not necessarily the moral voice that we've said we're leading with, but the one that we actually should be leading with. It's, it's, it's more about you know, just this, this, what it truly is a land of opportunity. Uh, what I hope America to be, I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of folks that say they love the country, but to me, I look at America like I think a responsible parent looks at raising children. You know, we love our children. Our children do marvelous things and we can point those out all the time. Um, but you know, we have to be parents and we have to acknowledge where we need to improve and we need to do a better job. And the America to me kind of reflects what the constitution was meant to be. And that's a living document. You know, there are a lot of folks that say, well, it's the constitution, it's hard, it's set in stone. And that's not what it was meant to be at all. If it was meant to be that, we wouldn't have the ability to amend it. Um, and so I like to think of America as something that was founded on great ideas and great culture. And I think that, I like to think that America can be something that is evolving and we're just working to get better. And, you know, I, obviously there are going to be dissenting voices and people who are going to try to thwart progress, but we need to use in my America, our democratic voice to make sure that we keep moving in the right direction that we actually can hold our heads up high and lead by example in a world that needs it. Okay, let's move to your second book, American Reality. What kind of an emotional journey do you take us on in American Reality? You talk about an emotional journey. Can you describe this journey? I think it's a scary one. I think, I think that American reality hits harder on fear, much harder than fear than American Fries does. Uh, as I was, you know, as I was mentioning, a lot of that book was written in 2020. Uh, a lot of that book was written with the virus in the background, with the political craziness in the background, and all of the fighting and all of the um, all of the screaming and shouting and just, you know, fear. Are we going to be able to wake up and breathe tomorrow? Um, the piece, the book opens up with a poem um, about the day the music died, Buddy Holly. Uh, and it's almost like a, a written piece to Buddy Holly. Like, what were your thoughts when the plane was going down? Were you thinking about the fact that the only reason you're on that plane is because you had to serve, you know, the, your management's 
demands of you to go out there and they basically don't think anything about you. Um, and then it bleeds into schools reopening in the middle of a pandemic, um, uh, bleeds into like all of the civil unrest that's happening, the revolutionary spirit, the dark side that goes along with the movement to make ourselves better. Cause there is a dark side to that. Um, and fear of, of politics. Um, you know, what happens uh, if someone makes a stupid move and all of a sudden we end up in a war we don't want to be in? Um, fear of being a, being a young person and going out and trying to find a career uh, mm -hmm. as part of a lower class. So, I mean, it, it's just, it, I think it captures that book, if anything, and this, I guess this is one reason why I am glad this book came out individually, is I think it captures the darkness of 2020 really well. So I guess if there is an emotional journey, um, it's probably fear. And maybe there are lessons to be learned in dark times. And I think there are <laughs> lessons learned in that book, but there's, there's a lot of fear running through there. So what inspired the second book? Any specific moment, something that offset or set you in motion and you said, all right, I need to write this. Was there a specific moment? Well, um, it's difficult to pinpoint a specific moment since the book is really a collection of various pieces yes. inspired by their own moments. But I suppose that like so much else in the world. And I know that I've talked a lot about COVID, but I suppose that there are more pieces in that book that might not have been specifically driven from that, but because there's so much else in the world that happened because of the virus or things were made worse, I suppose if I had to pick one, that would be it. But I don't think that that does the, the vision of the uh, of, of the book justice either i mean it's not just about covid it's not so um what were some of the challenges in writing this one the challenges in writing this one um you build up your confidence with the first one right that we talked right. about so what were some of the challenges in this one uh the challenges in this book um, I think that, well, first of all, this book was easier. I will say that this book was oh, really, okay. yes, this book was easier because I had learned things. Okay. Um, I had learned, I mean, I had, I knew how to put together a manuscript. I was confident in my writing, um, or at least more confident in my writing. I think that, um, one of the interesting things about this book is uh, originally I was going to do something else with these pieces. My wife and I were talking about a dual project, but as I was looking at accumulating pieces for that, I saw that, wow, they just kind of like fit really well together. Um, and I, so I ended up, we ended up suspending that project just so I could put this out because I mean, this one, I don't want to say that it wrote itself, but putting it together was pretty darn effortless compared to the experience with fries the more the most challenging thing with reality um the most challenging thing with that was taking a couple there most of the pieces are new but there are a couple of pieces that go back a few years that i didn't use with fries 
And taking those older pieces and not just improving them, but making them fit the theme I was working with. So it required really giving a couple of those older pieces a complete overhaul. And so where Fry's was more about putting it together mm-hmm. with yes. reality, I guess the biggest challenge would be just taking a couple of pieces that weren't written within the last few months and turning them into pieces that feel like they were written alongside everything else. Okay. And you talk about American dreamers. Who are they specifically? What class? Is it a specific class or who do you, or in general, public in general? I think the American dreamers for me, um, I don't think they apply necessarily to any specific um, category. I suppose that if you're going to be dreaming in America, that means that you don't already have what you want. Um, And -hmm. obviously there are some folks who have a lot more than others. And there are some folks who have bigger dreams than others simply because, well, they don't have as much. But the American dreamers that I for me, at least the ones I sympathize with the most are the ones who um, who do go by that spirit of working hard, but not just working hard for themselves, but working hard to help bring everybody else up with them. You know, there are a lot of folks out there who I think could make, help make the American dream a lot more real for folks who don't already have it. Um And some choose to and some don't. But I think that the true champions of the American dream are those who try to make it a reality for everybody. So I think anyone can dream. um, But I think some American dreamers are more admirable than others. Uh, I know that that's not an exact answer to your question. um, But I guess that... um, that's probably when I think about the American dreamers, the ones that I want to write about, those would be the ones who they are. Um, And some make mistakes and some don't. That's human, part of being human. All right, would you like to read to us? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Um, I am going to read, we were talking a little bit about hope earlier. Yes. And so um, I am going to take a look at this final piece um, in American reality, uh, and this is part of where the hope comes from. Uh, the story is called A Reason to Believe, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read enough, hopefully that will give everybody a good idea of where the story could go, and I think it captures a lot of the symbolism and spirit of the rest of the book, the darkness, but maybe just a little bit of hope too. Okay, uh, A Reason to Believe. The day after I lost my job, I hit the road. I was absolutely devastated. I'd spent years there, hoping that if I kept at it, I'd finally be able to pay off those damn student loans and make a life for myself. Prayed for it every night, hoping I'd be able to beat the odds and make this place my home. When they let me go, I felt like dying. I could never afford my rent on unemployment let alone everything else I'd need to live in a metropolis like this. And I had no family to speak of or any friends. I wasn't antisocial. I just didn't have time to make any. 
The only thing I wanted to do was run away down some endless path of two-lane highways to get as far away from that hell, my reality, as possible. An old song said that down every road, there was always one more city, and I was determined to find out if it was true. I hope to God it was, because an infinite highway was the only light I could see at the end of the tunnel. But I found another light in a roadside diner called the Finish Line on the outskirts of a long forgotten town in the eyes of an old man who struck up a conversation with a waiter once he stumbled in for a plate of chili cheese fries after working in a job where he'd been stuck for years. The pay wasn't great, he said, even in the town's glory days, his glory days. His eyes lit up before taking that first bite as though he was Ponce de Leon and he had just found the fountain of youth. He was dying for a drink, but they didn't serve booze. The gooey cheese would do, he told the waiter. The indigestion might get him later, but he felt blessed in the moment, he told him, as a fat domino number playing on an ancient jukebox reminded him of the time he found his freedom years ago in a nearby roadside motel on a Saturday night with a pretty brunette he loved throughout high school. They turned off the lights and opened the curtains to let in the warm glow from the neon light outside while they danced to the Opry as it played from the radio on the nightstand. They never went to sleep that night, I overheard as he told his story. He knew he'd be too tired for church, but that was fine, for that moment was as close to heaven as he could imagine, or at least as close as he could get. He figured he'd never be able to make enough to afford the train ticket. Unfortunately, his time in heaven was short, he said. She died a few years later. Cancer got her, like so many others who breathed in the dirty air from the factories, most of them now in ruins, on a daily basis while trying to make a paycheck-to-paycheck -paycheck living. They had planned on getting married and probably would have had he not delayed in setting the date because he couldn't afford the perfect ring. She would have been fine with whatever, he said, but he desperately wanted to get the one she deserved. I looked at the waiter, whose tears were clearly visible, even behind his glasses. He asked the man if there was anything he could do for him. Just a coke for the road, he replied. It was what his love always requested before leaving a restaurant, and he had picked up the habit as a small tribute in a way. Did you guys ever come here to eat? The finish line's been here since before I was born. Yes. But where is that motel? Only motel round here is, was, the old Mercury Courts. Yep, headed out that way now. But it's just a, a shell? Yep, not much left of it now. Even the sign's gone. Rich man from the city bought it for his collection. God knows what he needs it for, how it could be so important to him. So why go? To remember, so much is gone now the town, the motel, most of the people, most of my life. Figure I ain't got much time left, but my memories I still got, and they'll have to pry them from my cold, dead hands. The waiter walked away behind the counter. Within a minute, he returned with his drink in a plain white styrofoam cup. The man smiled and started to leave the diner. To this day, I don't know why, 
but I stood up from my nearby booth and approached him. And the story goes on from there. <laughs> okay, oh, very nice. Could you give us the details of your book's giveaway? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so this is what's going to happen. I am going to give away a copy of each of my books. Here is what whoever wants a copy of the books, one copy of each, will have to do. Uh, what you'll do is you will email me. My email address is Jared Morningstar, J-A-R-E-D, M-O-R-N-I-N-G-S-T-A-R, it's my first and last name, at gmail.com. Whoever emails me uh, with their address, the first one to do it, I will send you a copy of both books. Excellent. Before we do our parting shots, I would like to thank our sponsors, Dov Chavant and Digital Quill Services for Writers with author Colleen Nye. Jared, give us your parting shots. My parting, my parting shot simply would be to, as a lot of people have said, I guess, um, when you look about you, you look around you at the people, at the places. Um, don't just look at what's on the surface. Look at who they are. Try to get all the intricacies of who they are, get a further understanding and awareness of who's around you and what's around you. Because what will happen is you'll have a better idea of how we can take our situation and make it better. Maybe make it better for others, make it better for ourselves. And I guess my other parting shot is just to love each other. We need to love each other. If we don't love each other and stand by each other and and do all of those things that makes humanity great. Um, that's how we end up in dark times. Excellent. And my parting shots are buy indie, read indie, and write indie. Keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair because you too can become a published author. Enter the National Novel Writing Month in November. And a quick last reminder, don't forget to join us on Wednesday, October 20th at 7 p.m. on Zoom for a panel discussion, Power Your Nano 2021, with nano authors Jean Davis, Sarah Shannon, and Christine Bricky. The new Zoom link is posted on my blog, emmapalova.com. Thank you, Jared, for being on the show. Thank you, Emma, so much. It's been wonderful. It's been great.